Well, good morning. God bless. It's nice to be in this Advent season where we can come and start looking forward to the, the story of the birth of Christ, isn't it? Now, November is no shave November, and that's in order to bring attention to prostate cancer. So I started doing no shave November back when Floyd first got prostate cancer and stuff. But December is shave close December because I always have my uh, dermatology uh, exam there and she needs to see everything. And if you're wondering why it looks like I've been poked and burned with a cigarette lighter, well, that's why. She does that to me. We are in Luke chapter 16 this morning, so turn that way in your Bibles. And uh, let's start with prayer. Father God, we are so thankful for this season. It, it reminds us once again that, that the Savior came from heaven put on flesh, became man, and lived among us so he might understand the, the pain that, that we go through. And as our great high priest, he makes intercession for us because of the cross that he bore. We give you thanks for that. And Lord, we lift up Paul for, to you right now because we've got a request that he's just not well right now. So I pray that you would touch him and do a miraculous work in his body. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, last chapter we saw three stories, parables, about the heart of God. These things compare the heart of God. We had the shepherd who left everything in order to go and to find that lost sheep. And at this, this Advent season, it makes sense for us to think about that because the good shepherd left heaven in order to seek and save the lost. It's easy to see the comparison. Then we have a lady who is searching for her lost coin, much like the Holy Spirit goes and seeks after us. And the coin being a part of the headdress, part, part of the, the wedding covenant, the Holy Spirit bringing that back for us. And of course, the father, he looked and received back his son who had been lost, this wayward son, and he, he made him not a slave, but the son that he was. God reconciles us and forgives us completely, not just allowing us back in the house, but he restores the relationship with us. And the key for all these different things is where it said that heaven and God rejoiced over the sinner that was saved. They rejoiced over it over a sinner that repents. What about us? Are we like that? Because it was a comparison to God, but it was a contrast to the Pharisees because the Pharisees weren't that way at all. They were a part of this audience that he was, was there with, and, and he's explaining that the Pharisees are not those who receive sinners like God does. In fact, Jesus publicly calls out the Pharisees and the scribes and tells these tax collectors and sinners don't be like them, don't follow after them, and don't try to get the eternity that they are talking about. Don't embrace the wicked God that they call Jehovah because it is not Jehovah God that they are talking about. And I would guess that there was a huge part of this crowd, they're listening to this because remember, it was the tax collectors and the sinners that all went to Jesus. They were wanting to hear this, and the, the scribes and the Pharisees and stuff, they were just listening anyway. And so they hear this message that they can repent. 
And if you remember from last week, they weren't allowed to repent according to what the scribes and the Pharisees had to say and the rabbis. So for Jesus to say, you have an opportunity to repent, this is a great thing for them. And I would guess that a great number of them did indeed repent and they were reconciled to God. Well, we have other sinners here that are furious about this message that Jesus gives and they reject the notion that they needed to repent because they're the Pharisees. They are the standard of righteousness that is portrayed to the people and so they are angry at all this. And Though this picture that Jesus paints of the Father shows us compassion and his love and his mercy, we need to be careful about having the attitude that came from a book that came out a few years ago that says, God is not mad at you. Now, with this book, we need to understand that God will, God must judge sin. He must. And that wrath of God will come to bear upon the sinner who has not repented of those sins. But those who have returned, well, yes, it's absolutely true. God is not mad at you. God is not mad at you. This is different than how I grew up in church. And so I want you to know that you are sons of God. If you are sons of God, then God is not mad at you. It's not like with the prodigal son always harping on him and stuff because he was still mad at him. Just as the father received that prodigal uh, completely, there's no more conversation about sin because God so thoroughly forgives us that it is not held against us. God cannot judge your sin and condemn you for your sin because Jesus bore the sin and the condemnation for us on the cross. And so our sin doesn't exist anymore. There is nothing for God to judge with that. So again, God's love for us is like that of the prodigal's father. We are received back in complete restoration with this. Now Luke is also known for uh, recording Jesus' parables of, of contrast as well as the parables of comparison. We've seen this already with the parable about the, the neighbor. You remember the guy, he had a friend come at night, midnight, and, and wanted something to eat. And so the guy knocks on his neighbor's house door and said, hey, let us in. Give me some bread, give me some bread, give me some bread. And the guy said, no, man, we're in bed. All the family's in here. It's all locked up and stuff like that. And the guy kept on pestering him. And because he pestered him, then the guy got up and gave him some bread. That's a contrast to God because God is not the one that you nag because he doesn't want to do something for you. So this, this uh, idea of a, a contrasting parable is good for us to understand. And this next parable is also one of contrast. And if you realize this, it won't hurt your head so bad. Because, I mean, otherwise you think that Jesus is commending the sinner and his sin. Chapter 16, verse 1. Now he was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. And this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, 
What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do so that when I'm removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors, and he began saying to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relationship in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. So yeah, confusing, isn't it? So first of all, Jesus isn't just talking to random people. He's talking to his disciples. It's more than just the 12. It's all the followers of Jesus. But inside this group of followers of Jesus, you have the, the Pharisees around there somewhere, either in a group going, you know, listening or whatever, and, and need to understand that they are infiltrating what Jesus is saying here because their desire is to grass him up. Yeah, right? I heard that on a British TV show the other day. I'm like, what the heck does that It means to narc on them and bring them to the authorities to try to get them in trouble. All right? So they're trying to hear what Jesus has to say so that they can take him to court and find him guilty of something, have him arrested. So the first thing you may have noticed with this parable is that the hero is a thief and a liar. All right, it hurts right behind the eye, doesn't it? To, to look at, so he's an anti-hero here. And I know it used to mess me up back when I was young because it, I, I didn't know anything about a contrasting parable. So this looked like Jesus was commending this weasel to us for that. But what he is telling the, his disciples, including us, is completely different. Well, what is it? Let's look at the story. Let's break it down. We have this man, and he is really rich. He is so rich that he has a guy just to take care of his wealth. This is his, his wallet, I guess you could say. And so he is the steward over all aspects of the man's wealth. He was responsible for accounts payable, for accounts receivable, for loan approval, for purchasing, for payroll, for every part of it. He was an accountant but with this man as the only person that he was working for. And his reach went much farther than a regular accountant because he was able to mess with everything concerning his finances. He was a CPA, a crooked pilfering accountant. <laughs> and this manager is reported as to squandering his possessions, the man's possessions. And your sins will find you out. This is more than embezzlement. This is more than just skimming a little bit and putting it in your pocket. And did you notice it said squandering his possessions? That's the exact wording that it said about the prodigal squandering his father's wealth. And so what we have here with last week and this week, two prodigals. And we're going to see completely different 
routes that they take and completely different eternities for them. This man didn't just have access, but he foolishly spent it all upon himself. He didn't skim a little bit. He took a bunch, and it was all about him, wasted it on him. If I showed up here with a brand-new Lamborghini, you would call the cops or skip, you know, somebody. You'd let somebody know about it. It would be reported to someone. And so you would know that it was not by honest means. And the steward seems to be living beyond his means as well. And so somebody looks at this and goes, this isn't right. And so they report him to the rich man. And so this is a white-collar crime, and he is about to get collared by it. So someone tells the boss, and the boss orders an audit. And the crooked steward starts to sweat, right? He knows he's guilty. He knows it's just not a, an addition mistake. He knows that it's not just creative financing. He knows that he hasn't just been trying to save money from the IRS. He knows that he's a thief and that he's busted. Well, what do you do? Well, you could ask for mercy. That's, I mean, that's one option, but it's not his. See, this is where we contrast between the prodigal son who returned and this prodigal accountant who's off and rejects the idea. And so the man has gotten soft on his job. It's possible that the padding that he has put on has shown the padding that he's been putting into his wallet, but physical labor is out. Unemployment is out. A severance check seems unlikely. A reference from this rich man to his next boss, that's not going to happen. I know what I'll do. I will go and I will burrow myself in like a tick to these other people that owe him money so that by forgiving some of their debt, they will owe me. And that's exactly what it does. It says, he summoned each one of his master's debtor and began saying first, I mean, how much do you owe my master? And the first guy, he owed a hundred measures of oil. A hundred measures of oil is nearly a thousand gallons. That's a lot of olives. So this rich man was really rich. It's like three years wages for this amount, and the steward cuts it in half, which would certainly please that debtor, don't you think? Enough so, so that the weasel will be able to stay with him. And the steward has just made a friend, but he's also made an accomplice. He's also made it so that should the need arise, he has somebody to blackmail. How much more will this man pay beyond the cost of the oil? Now, 100 measures of wheat. Make it 800. Make it 800. Is he being less generous with this guy than he was with the guy that owed the oil? Maybe with the oil, it can look like it's still there. You put the, the empty pot's there, and it still looks like it's a full pot. Maybe it's easier to hide that way. But actually, uh, having this much wheat was nine years' wages. Okay, nine years' wages. And so it shows how much land this rich man must have had because the olive oil would have had taken 150 trees, mature trees, in order to make that much. And that's just for this one guy. Presumably, he sold it to other people as well. 
The wheat would have needed 100 acres to produce 1,000 bushels to make this 100 measures of wheat. And so the steward saved the first guy one and a half years' wages. And he saves the second guy 1.8 years' wages. So it's pretty, it's pretty close with that. Uh, and what we need to realize, though, is that they aren't saving this much. They're stealing this much. This isn't the, the reduced meat department at, at Smith's. This isn't where you go there and you see manager special. This is a different manager and a different special. It's like, here, steal this. And so it's, you don't owe the rich man anymore. You owe me. And that's exactly how Satan gets and burrows into us, isn't it? It's the cost of the second that's far greater than the cost of the first. And so we see just two examples of, of shrewdness from the steward. And it's on the basis of crafty thinking. Well, this is, this is brilliant. This is very creative. Now, he doesn't say that the rich man praised him for his character or for his hard work or any meritorious standard, but simply the cleverness of mind that he had with this. And part of Jesus' point here is, why are the sons of, of God not shrewd like the sons of the devil? Why don't we look forward and be creative as to how we can make the most out of our kingdom? Well, he will answer that in a moment, but we ended this part with verse 9, and I say to you, make friends for yourself by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. Wow, okay. What is that about? Well, Jesus is telling the disciples to connive and, and take from people, right? Oh, no, that isn't it. We'll see in just a minute. But have you noticed that this parable, it's about money? Did you know that about a third of Jesus' parables were about money? What's one of the greatest problems that people have with church, their complaints about church? All they do is talk about money, right? I had that experience. When I was a, a, a young man, like 15, um, Mom and I were going to a, a church here in town, and it was a husband and wife pastoral team. And they did pretty well tag teaming and stuff because, let's say, the, the husband preached on Sunday morning, the wife preached on Sunday night. And then the next week, the wife would preach on Sunday morning, and the man would preach on Sunday night. And, you know, it worked pretty well. I mean, they had two sermons. Holy Spirit's bad seriously, and you don't pay us enough. You, you think I'm exaggerating, but I'm not. Embellishing, maybe. But, but seriously, I got to college and reconnected with one of my friends from this church, and I asked him, how in the world did you get filled with the Holy Spirit with all the preaching against it back in that church? And he said, they were preaching against it? How can you preach against something that much? But that's how it was. And the money thing was an issue for them also. They moved to Pueblo where they could get a decent living. What did I care what they thought? What they taught? What did I care? I didn't have any money. I didn't give them anything. 
And I'd already been filled with the Holy Spirit, so I didn't have to worry about that anymore either. So, besides, there was this girl. Anyway, welcome to Calvary Chapel. We talk about money here because the Scripture does. But it's to teach, not to take. Here, the text is all about being faithful and not loving mammon, which is the Aramaic word here. We know that you can't love God and money, God and mammon. Or we will in a couple verses when he actually says it. Um, it's not, give money to me so that you won't be tempted, like I have heard some pastors do. Instead, it's, let's be faithful to God with it. Again, verse 9, make friends with, for yourself by means of the wealth of unrighteous so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. We are looking here at a comparison between the disciple and the unfaithful steward. And so if you're going to be an unfaithful steward, you need to figure out how to make it on this earth because your destiny is not going to be in heaven. So whatever it is that you're going to try to get from earth, from your sinful lifestyle, will take care of one another because there will be a judgment. There will be two eternities. We're going to see that in the, the next parable after this, which is not this week. Anyway, because the Pharisees are listening into this, how much do you suppose that the story of the wicked steward is being spoken of them? Well, all of it, right? I mean, not just them, but certainly it's all for them. And so Jesus is contrasting what evil people do and what disciples ought to do. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, we see Paul say, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. There's a different standard for the believer. There's a different calling for the believer. It is not in the love of the temporary, but a love for the eternal. Verse 10, he who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you, entrust to, ah, sorry, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of what, which is another's, who will give you what, that which is, I'm sorry, see, I've got this floater, and it's a new one, and it's right there, and I, I should just close that eye. All right. Who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth, or God and mammon. All right, so we've got this unfaithful steward. Do we have unfaithful disciples? I fear we are sometimes. An unfaithful disciple chooses self over Christ, just like this steward chose himself over his master. Oh, he's, I mean, look at this, this steward. He served the boss sometimes, whenever it was convenient, whenever it wasn't too hard. Whenever it aligned with what he wanted, I mean, he's got to help 
keep him rich and stuff like that because he's stealing from it. And so if it was what he wanted to, then that's great. He had to keep up appearances, but it wasn't his passion. Kind of the same with the unfaithful disciple. It wasn't his life because he was all about himself. But for the disciple, we must be faithful stewards financially. We must invest in eternity instead of just partying while we're here waiting. And if you're waiting for me to talk about giving, well, here you go. You should give. It sets your compass on things above. Other people need it. I mean, we send money to the Philippines all the time, and you can't imagine all the good that it does on the mission field there and other places. But you will see it one day because in heaven, you're going to see people that are there because we gave. You need to understand that. Another thing is it makes you feel a part of the whole. And then God will bless you. So how much should you give? It's not about business. For some of you, a dollar is a sacrifice. For others, you wouldn't bend over for a dollar. I've heard that Bill Gates, he has so much wealth and he earns so much money per minute, per second, whatever, that if he bent over to pick up a $100 bill, he would lose money. He doesn't go to church here. So where are we with this? Where are we with giving? I mean, the Bible says that God loves a cheerful giver. So how much should you give? No more than what you are cheerful with. Remember that pastor I told you about a while back? He said, God loves a cheerful giver, but he'll take it from a grouch. The truth is, he'll take it from a grouch. He wanted your money. Well, welcome to Calvary Chapel. If you cannot lovingly say, God, I gladly give you this for your blessing and for your work, I don't want it. Don't give it if that's not your attitude. Because if you give it that way, it will never be a blessing for you, and it will be a curse to the church because your attitude of resentment becomes a part of the church. So give as God leads you to give, not as some man tells you to give. It's very important. Back when I first took over as senior pastor, we were in a world of hurt financially. Right, Dave? I mean, every day we'd go out to the mailbox and look to see if there was any money in it because we had an overdrawn account, a checking account. I'm sorry. It was an overdraft. So it was a loan that paid off, made sure that we didn't bounce checks. And it was maxed out. And we would go and we'd try to pay it down. It was like 18% interest. And we're like, how are we going to survive this? I mean, we had so many rifts at the lab and stuff. We were, we were down to about this many people. And said, well, you know what we need to do? I built that agape box back there. Stopped taking an offering and said, God, we know that this is Calvary Chapel and where God guides, God provides. 
And we prayed that he would, and he has ever since. Because we were faithful and because God is faithful. In Titus chapter 1, verse 7, it says, For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain or filthy lucre in other translations, not greed for gain. If I prove to be a money grabber, how am I a faithful steward to God? How do I represent God to other people if that's how I make God look? Did you know that October is Pastor Appreciation Month? A couple people do. But, you know, a lot of people don't because I didn't tell you. I didn't advertise it. I didn't say, hey, you guys should give me something. Yeah, yeah. Not, not only am I appreciated all the time, yeah, but, but see, it, it's not about trying to get stuff. Now, Pastor Jim always did tell you guys about Pastor Appreciation Month because he wanted you to appreciate Floyd and I, who were never, well, seldom in the limelight, like Jim was all the time up here. So that's a different thing. So anyway, it's not just talking about what you do for God. It's also about how you do things for God and with what attitude you do it. Are you faithful to all that he calls you to do? And there will be people at the judgment seat of Christ. And they will watch all the many, 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 many things that they've done laid there and it will burn like wood, stay in the hubble, wood, hay, and stubble. Because although they did tons of stuff, it wasn't what God asked them to do. Or it wasn't with the attitude that God asked them to do. They were insanely busy, but either it was about works for salvation instead of living by grace, or by some obligation that they felt that wasn't ever there, they weren't really being faithful to God. And David proved to be faithful by shepherding some sheep. And God made him king over Israel. Faithful over a little thing. Because if you're not faithful over the little thing, you will not be faithful over the big thing. Sometimes we think that, well, it's all right, I'll be faithful here and, and I'll, I'll slack off here. But if you slack off here, you will slack off here, according to what Jesus just said. You know, I don't want to be king of anything. But I do want to be the good and faithful servant that is welcomed to heaven by Jesus. And you know, a lot of people don't understand that when we leave here, we're not going to be sitting on clouds. We're not going to be playing harps. There are, did you, there are jobs in heaven. Well, some say Steve Jobs is already there. I don't know. He may, may, anyway. If you are faithful here, your job there will be much better. Verse 14. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your heart. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. 
The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. So yep, wherever Jesus goes, wherever the gospel goes, Satan sends his minions, right? Either his demons or his puppets, the Pharisees. They, uh, see, the, pup, the Pharisees are puppets of Satan. They appear to be leading people to God, but it's diverted enough that they never actually get there. They miss there. It's just like the false teacher who appears to be bringing people to God, but they don't come to God because they don't get preached the cross of Jesus. And so these Pharisees see that Jesus is making an impact on his disciples, and so the wolves try to kill the sheep. Well, the good shepherd comes back with, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows who you are. You might be... Fooling them, but you are not fooling God. You are the wicked steward in the parable. What you are seeking after yourself is detestable in the sight of God. You are the ones who are telling these people who owe God that they can circumvent that and they don't have to go to God through Jesus. You are the ones who are telling them to follow us rather than follow after God. You are the ones who have been stealing from God all of this time. You are the ones who are trying to force your way into the kingdom. I don't think they were very happy about this. They were displeased with Jesus often. They would have been better going home and watching reruns of Gilligan's Island. But let's look at this verse. It says, since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. There's a translation, apparently, that says, taking it by force. Taking it by force. And there's a new teaching that came out, oh, it's probably 10 years old now, that says, we're taking the kingdom by force. Go, attack. Ah! I should have brought my bad doctrine buzzer, because that would have been a good place for one. Don't they see that those who are forcing their way in are the bad guys? Not the disciples. He's accusing the Pharisees of this. Why can't we just read another verse or two and get some context with this? Really, it only takes one word. But, you are trying to force your way in, but the law is not going to fail. No way. And the law, the word of God, points to the Christ. Not coming however you want to, not doing whatever you want to, not coming your own way and forcing your way into the kingdom, but it's through the way, the truth, and the life, because no one comes to the Father but through Jesus. It says that the Pharisees were lovers of money. Jesus had just said you cannot serve God and money, and clearly they're serving money. It's no wonder they started scoffing at him. But have you noticed that the vast majority of people who are angry at God and scoff him, do so because he does not approve of their lifestyle. The Pharisees are no different. They keep smaller parts of the law, just like the steward keeping part of, you know, doing the, the master's work. A little bit of it, keeping up the appearance and things, but they didn't do the important parts of it. 
Case in point is the next verse, 18, says, Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. And there are those who love to grab this verse and just absolutely beat up those people who have been divorced. They refuse grace to anyone in that boat. Does God hate divorce? Well, of course he does. I mean, it, it damages the foundation of society, which is the family. It tears the family up. It's the reason that society is so screwed up today. But does God hate the divorced? There are times when divorce is absolutely appropriate. Jail also, by the way. There are times when, you know, people were foolish. They married foolishly. I mean, it was a mistake. You know, that, that was just, that was dumb. There are times when people divorce foolishly. They were emotional. They got, and they, they divorced and they regret it. We know people like that also. So this is not a weapon for you to bash people over the head with. And don't you dare say that Jesus said that it's okay for me to do that. Because that's not who he is at all. What he is doing is calling out the Pharisees for doing this. Because the Pharisees would divorce and remarry woman after woman after woman. To the point where they started kind of cycling them around and just trading wives, if you will. And so Jesus is calling them out for this. You guys say that you're keeping the law, but what about this? Because this is clearly what the law says. They are justifying their actions as noble with that. And we'll see more with the last part of this chapter, but not today. We don't have time for that. And there's only one point for us today. I think you can remember it. Be faithful. Be faithful to God. Follow God, not this world. You can't love them both. With finances, well, sure, yeah, but the order for finances within the church, come to church. Feel and be a part of the church. Serve the church. Love one another. And then give. And they can overlap some, but it's not come to church and you have to give today. But I know people who feel that that's how they must be. And you have visitors come and they say, you didn't pass a basket today. And I said, no, we didn't pass a basket because we have the agape box because we know that the, the people who give should be the people who are a part of this church, not just everybody that comes to the church. And they were shocked out of their brains. But anyway, faithful means doing as asked or commanded. But welcome to Calvary Chapel, because it's not about some legalistic list of rules. You must do this, and you must do that. And like I said, where God guides, God provides. Hear from him through his word, through prayer, through conversations with other godly people, and then do it. Do what he says. Love him. Be faithful. Let's pray. Well, Father God, we thank you so much for your love and your mercy for us. We thank you that the word is not used as a weapon against us. 
We thank you that you are not angry at us, that our sin is forgiven just like the prodigal's sins were forgiven him by his father and he was restored. God, I pray that you'd help us to live in that way instead of under the condemnation that many of us grew up with. And if there's anybody here that struggles with that, God, I pray that you would show them so clearly today that you find no fault in them, no guilt in them, but only the righteousness of Jesus. I pray that you go with us this day and this week and just continue to show us your truths. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord bless you guys. Have an awesome day.